Well, at this time, we come to our sermon scripture reading. We're beginning a new series in the book of Zechariah. So as you're able, please stand with us. So we're in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. You can follow along in your Bibles, or you can follow along with the text on the screen. Zechariah chapter 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as you keep your Bibles open to the book of Zechariah, we're beginning this morning a new series in this rather strange Old Testament book. In fact, uh, the ancient uh, early Christian leader, Jerome, said that Zechariah was the, and I quote, most obscure of books in the Bible. So let that encourage you. Uh, But I I actually prefer, I mean, obviously, uh, Jerome was a Christian, and the person I'm now going to quote wasn't. But in many ways, I prefer, um, there's one very well-known medieval rabbi called Rashi. And if you're studying Old Testament scripture books, it's sometimes useful to look at the rabbis and see what they said. Clearly, they didn't interpret it as a Christian would interpret it, but nonetheless, a medieval rabbi knows his Hebrew pretty well. And so it's, it's good to read through and think through what they say. And Rashi has, in his comments on this book, has one, there's a lot of different things he says, but he has one phrase that has always stuck with me when I think about Zechariah. And he, he refers to how um, strange the book of Zechariah is. And it really is pretty strange. And the, the, the passage we're looking at this morning is um, fairly vanilla and sort of typical prophetic-like. But the, as we get in, on through the book, you get these really odd visions and dreams and, and, and uh, some of the imagery he uses is, is, is pretty strange, frankly. I mean, one of the visions he has is of a woman in a basket who's carried away by two other women with wings like storks. Like, okay. Uh, and so anyway, so Rashi's referring to this, this strangeness of the book. And he doesn't come up with simplistic answers to these images. But what he says is, and this is the bit that stuck with me, when the teacher of righteousness comes, then we will understand. And of course, when I read that, I sort of wept for Rashi. Because, of course, the teacher of righteousness has come. And when you believe in him, 
the strangeness of Zechariah, and of course there are some strange images there, but the, it's no longer obscure. And I think that I know what Jerobe was saying, but the, the fundamental, basic, essential message of Zechariah is not obscure for us anymore because the teacher of righteousness has come. And so that's, that's where we're going to be going through the series. Now this morning... The central message of this morning is the central message of uh, the, the passage, of course, and it's very simply expressed in verse 3, where God says through his prophet, return to me and I will return to you. And so the theme of the message this morning is return to God and he will return to us. It's a very simple message. Um, but one that's often overlooked and one that we shouldn't interpret as simplistic is actually simplicity on the other side of complexity. Have you ever thought about that? There's a, there's a kind of um, simplicity that is simplistic. Uh, the, a, a childish interpretation of something that when we grow up that we put the childish things behind us and then we, 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 we understand things with more maturity. There's that kind of simplicity or being overly simplified that as a Christian grows and develops and as we understand more about the Bible, we don't want that kind of simplicity. But nor do we want to stay in, in the zone of just complexity where things are obscure and confusing and and Christians can do that too. I, I remember quite recently I was looking through a, uh, a paper written by a very learned professor. And this learned professor, I think in the first three or four paragraphs, hardly used one word that was under four syllables long. And it was just too complicated. And there comes a moment where if you can't say something simply, it probably means you don't really understand it. There's simplicity that's on the other side of complexity. For example, for that would be, of course, the, the, the general theory of relativity, Einstein's famous theory about how the universe works, and, and, and it's complicated, but there's an elegance to the famous equation that summarizes it, E equals mc squared, that is simplicity on the other side of complexity. And when Zacharias, uh, God through Zachariah here says, uh, return to me and I will return to you, we shouldn't think of that as being simplistic and juvenile and not sophisticated for the problems of life, alcoholism, sexual abuse, political chaos. No, no, no. This is simplicity on the other side of complexity. This is the E equals MC squared, elegant solution to the universe. It's a key for spiritual health. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So our task is to keep, keep the, the simplicity of it in mind. But then as we dive into the complexity, not get kind of stuck in the complexity, and there is complexity here in the context, as I'll explain in a moment, and then come back to the simplicity and receive it so that we, we respond as the text is calling us to respond. 
So first of all, let's, let's look at uh, this uh, uh, passage in terms of the story. And of course, it's the story here, and then there's a principle, and then there's a call for response. That's going to be the structure of the sermon. But the, the, I think we will all immediately realize that this idea that is being preached here in the text of returning to God is an important one. But let me just make that obvious if we don't. But one of the great questions of life is how we start again. We all make mistakes. We all fail. We all sin. How do you start again? How do you rebuild your life if you failed? And in the context here, you'll see that's what's been presented to them as how to do that. And so, but not only is it important individualistically in terms of our own lives and the importance of figuring out how to begin again, it's also important for like one of the, the big questions of our day, and I just was reading um, before I came out to this third service in between, I was just reading an article about someone just describing the chaos in the Western world yet again, and this... It's like I think most of us are aware that the foundations are shaking in our world. And we could talk about Russia and Ukraine, we could talk about China, we could talk about political divisiveness, and on and on and on. And the, and the question that's been posed, I think, to the church and to the preachers and to us who are Christians is, so what's the answer? And the answer is, return to God. And then he'll return to us. So it's a matter of huge significance. So let's get into it together. Now, first of all, the story, then the principle, and then the response. Now, the story, to bring out the backstory here, it's important to understand the time. So look at verse 1. Uh, the book of Zechariah begins by giving us a, a really specific time stamp. So verse 1 says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. There's a very specific time stamp. The eighth month. The second year of Darius, we know that this is 520 B.C., so before Christ, over 500 years before Christ, 520 B.C., and we actually know this is the end of October, what we would call October, end of October or the beginning of November, 520 B.C. This is a precise timestamp. Why? Because of the backstory. And the backstory, the easiest way to see it from the text is if you have a Bible open, you go down to verse 12, you'll see that in the first of these rather strange visions that Zechariah has that we'll be looking at next week, uh, the time, the importance of the time is illustrated in verse 12 where the angel uh, says to God, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, against which you've been angry these 70 years. Well, that's not... 70 years isn't a number chosen at random. 70 years is referring to the prophecy given to Jeremiah before God's people went into exile. 
saying that it would last 70 years and then God would bless his people again. And the question that's before Zechariah is, okay, it's been 70 years and yes, God's people are back in Jerusalem, but really? Is it really a blessing? Has God really been faithful to his word? So God's people, the northern kingdom went into exile in 722 BC. And then the, the southern kingdom, well, first there was the um, siege of Jerusalem from Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon in 605 BC. And then uh, the, invasion, the, the exile happened in sort of waves, 587 BC. And then uh, Cyrus, uh, the great king, uh, um, issued a decree throughout his empire of basically religious liberty and therefore allowing God's people under that rubric to come back to um, Jerusalem, which was they viewed as fulfillment of Jeremiah's uh, prophecy, uh, and in about 535 B.C. But then they came back. So that's all the time. But there's also the situation. So they come back. And what they come back to is not the way it was. So they've come back to Judah, but now Judah is actually politically Yehuda, which is a sub-province of the empire. And it's a sub-province of another province called beyond the river, beyond uh, the Euphrates from the Persian point of view. They're just like, they're a little out of the way, nothing. In what sense has God fulfilled his promise of blessing? And what is more, they're being dominated by the local governor in Samaria who's frustrated that formerly they're no longer under his control. And so because of that, he's blocking every attempt they're making to try and gain economic and political progress. Been going on for decades. And what is more, their economy is completely shot. There's inflation uh, the image is, is used of like what you put in your pocket, there's a hole in your pocket. In other words, you save something, but because there's inflation, pretty soon it's not worth anything. And, and they're an agrarian economy, so they agriculture and farming and all that. Uh, but what they sow, they don't reap. The, the, the soil has been messed up through the exile and the, the uh, and so they're economically and politically and then there's all then there's the social um, tension between the north and the south the, the, the people in the south view those in the north as racially and religiously impure and so there's fighting between uh, those who stayed in the land and those who come back have come back from exile and so it's just it's just one giant mess. And, and, and God, you said that after 70 years there'd be blessing. Where's that? And what he's saying is, you need to return not just to the land physically. You need to return to me. Spiritually. Return to God. And he will return 
to us. So that's the story. Now that, that principle, return to God, and he will return to us. As I say, it's simplicity on the other side of complexity. It's actually the most, one of the most profound spiritual truths taught in Scripture as evidenced by this was what Hezekiah said to God's people before they went into exile. He said, if you return to God, then he will return to you. That principle, same idea. And then later, Malachi, the last book in the Bible, says the same thing. You have it here. And then, of course, when Jesus, the teacher of righteousness, comes, when he announces his agenda, his message, the beginning of Mark's gospel, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. The time has come. Repent and believe the good news or return to God. You see, for those of us who emphasize God's sovereignty, which if you listen to my preaching over the years, you know that I do emphasize that, that God is king and he's in charge and not a hair on our head is lost without him knowing it, which seems more and more remarkable for me with every passing year. Um, a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground that he doesn't know it. The, the, the heart of the king, he moves this way and that. Even the intentions of our heart are in his control. And, and yes, uh, the great Chicago preacher A.W. Tozer would say that God is always previous. In other words, if you repent this morning, it's not because you're such a wonderful person. And it's not because this is such a wonderful sermon. It's because God moves in your heart. And so you give him the glory. Yeah, God is always previous. He's totally sovereign. True. But Jesus didn't say, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Isn't that good news? He didn't say that. What he said is, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. There is a condition. In God's providence, in God's sovereignty, he has arranged it so that his call of the gospel is effective in our lives if we return. There's a condition. And uh, it's true for our individual lives. It's true for our church lives. We need, that's why we, when we've just had it already this morning, a, a time of repentance and prayer, because when we come together, we need to return to God. It's true uh, for, our, uh, for the countries in which we live. Now, I know this is Old Testament Israel, and we don't live in a theocratic um, society. Uh, uh, the, the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel is... Fulfilled in Christ and in his people and in the new heaven, the new earth. And um, I come from a country where the queen is not only the head of the political system, but also head of the church. But I, 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 even that isn't a theocratic society. So I know that. And yet the Bible does say that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people and the and the and the salt and the light of God's people shining out the truth and living out the truth does have an impact on the on the country and if we want health in our city and in our country we need to return to God 
That's the principle. And it's been proved time and time and time again. The First Great Awakening, um, uh, when Edwards preached, there were literally people clinging to the pillars, uh, repenting in tears. In fact, the first time he preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he had to break off before the end because there was so much wailing for repentance that he and there were some other pastors, a bit like Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah are actually both preaching at the same time. God put together this kind of dynamic duo dream team of preachers to bring about revival to God's people. And with Edwards, there was a team of preachers, and they, they, they had, he had to break off preaching in the middle of the sermon and go down and start praying for people. And the same with the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening, of course, you've got D.L. Moody, the famous preacher, and uh, people like Spurgeon on the other side of the Atlantic and all that, but actually what we talked about our prayer meetings this morning. There was a prayer meeting in New York City of business people on, at lunch. And that was, they returned to God. That was, that, was, that was the thing. And it's true for families as well. I mean, I've been in so many pastoral conversations with people about marital conflict or parental conflict with children. And, and there are techniques and strategies that you can use and all that, but so often it comes down to a hardness of heart. And the answer to that is to return to God. None of us is holy before him. And if we wish his blessing in our lives, and I don't mean this in terms of prosperity, I mean in terms of the blessing that Jesus talks about in terms of renewed relationship with him and fullness of life and joy and the fruit of the spirit and, and all those things impact the practicalities of our lives. But if we want all that, the principle here being taught in the backstory is the uh, simplicity on the other side of complexity, which is the return to God and he'll return to us. Now, what do they do with that? They do respond. And there are lots of, it's really one of these bits that's a little obscure. So if you look down with me at verse 5, you'll see the response is, is being elicited by the preacher. So he's asking a rhetorical question. Your fathers, where are they? In other words, he's saying, what happened to those who didn't repent? And, of course, the answer is they went into exile. But then there's this other question. And the prophets, do they live forever? Uh, There are a number of different interpretations of that. One interpretation is that the people who are listening at the time uh, come back to the preacher and say, well, hold on. What about the preachers? Don't they need to repent? They're not so perfect either, uh, and that would be a, a valid and good interpretation. After all, uh, preachers are people who need to return to God as well. And there's only one who did not ever sin, and that his name was Jesus, the teacher of righteousness, but not, not any of us behind the pulpit. We need to be humble to come to God as well. And they could be making that point kind of back to the preacher, that's a possible interpretation. The other possible interpretation is that uh, Zechariah is saying, your fathers, where are they? Referencing the exile. 
But then he could also be saying, and the prophets, do they live forever? In other words, this message that you heard before the exile from King Hezekiah and Jeremiah and all the rest was also time-bound. Preachers don't live forever. I, I used to hear, uh, I used to enjoy listening to John Stott preach. This side of glory, I'll never hear him again. I remember the last time I heard him preach, I went down to New York City to hear him. I took with me one of my elders at the time, and we heard him preach, and I went up and shook his hand to remind him who I was. He'd probably forgotten, you know, I wasn't... Um, sort of close to him, but I, I'd come across him over the years. And I, t- I introduced him to the, uh, the elder. I'll never forget what Stott said. said he looked at the, he said, so you're one of his elders? He, he looked at this guy and said, you look after him. It's like, oh, you know, I would have paid a lot of money just to have that guy say that. That was good. And, but I'll never hear John Stott preach again this side of glory. I used to love to hear Billy Graham preach. I never actually heard him live. You can still hear it on the radio. You know, some, some radio preachers live forever, like E. Vernon McGee. He's still going on the radio, so I guess you can hear them in that sense. But they don't live forever. And their sermons don't last forever, which you may think is a good thing. But this sermon will come to an end. And I will no longer be appealing publicly for you to return to God, and the decision will be made. Will you or won't you? But they do. They respond. Uh, we're, we're told in verse 6, so they repented. It's actually the same word as return, so they returned. Well, there it is. That's the message. Return to God, and he will return to us. How do we put this into practice. It's easier said than done. Well, I hear a couple of ways from the text. First of all, trace out the implications. That's what Zechariah is doing for them. He's saying, your fathers, where are they? In other words, think through what happens to those who do not return. Don't play games. I like to crack jokes and laugh around. I'd like earlier to like, laugh with you about the fact that we're probably not going to fill the sanctuary tonight on Super Bowl weekend. Probably not, but I want you to come back anyway because Jose's pretty... Oh, that's funny. You know, I like that stuff. But, but let's not play games. with Like, trace it out. What, what happens to those who don't return to God? What happens to their families? What happens to their countries? What happens to their churches? Think about it. Your fathers, where are they? But then also think about the specific word he uses, which is return. So there are different words that are used for this biblical idea of repentance. Obviously, you've probably heard in the New Testament the, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. It's often preached about. It means 
essentially to change your mind. So part of repentance is to, isn't just an emotive response. It's actually a shift of thinking to change your mind. But the word here that's been chosen is return or go back. It's looking backwards, not forwards. And just like I said earlier, like I like to joke and laugh around, that's good and that's fine, but we need to think this through realistically and with some intensity, your fathers, where, where are they? Similarly with this, I'm, I'm someone who likes to think of the future. I like to read about whatever the li- latest scientific discoveries are. I, I love science fiction and thinking through what could be and how amazing it would be. If, uh, and the technological revolution we're going through is just astonishing. The kind of things that we can do now that, that yeah, I couldn't have dreamed that we could have done 20 years. I think it's amazing. So not, I don't think that everything in the past is necessarily better. I mean, you read about the past. That certainly isn't true. I'm glad that we live in the time of modern medicine. I'd be dead otherwise. I would have died before Christmas probably. Well, mind you, if, if I hadn't lived in the time of modern medicine, I wouldn't have had the surgery in the first place. So I guess it's, a, it's like a you know, good news, bad news thing, I suppose. But, I, but So I'm glad that we're alive today. And I don't think that everything about the 1950s was better than it is now. I'm certainly not. I mean, it, as far as I can see, and I, of course, wasn't alive in the South in the 50s, but I think racism was pro- pretty bad. So I, I don't think everything about the past was better than today. So when I say go back, I'm not saying go back to the way they used to do church. That's always seemed to me sort of ridiculous because Jonathan Edwards preached in a wig. So what do you do with that? Was, did he have long hair or short hair? Was that a hat? Biblically? I don't know. I'm not going to go back to preaching in a wig. Well, maybe I will soon enough, but a different, <laughs> a different kind of wig. But uh, so I'm not saying by go back, I'm not saying like everything was better then. Now, that's superficial. What, what, what Zachariah is saying is you've got to go further back and further back and further back. You've actually got to go back to your creator. He made you to the one that you have a covenant with when you were baptized. Your covenant, Lord, go back. And then he'll come back to you. Well, I hope you do that this morning. I said this at the first two services, so we'll see what what happens. But after the 11 o'clock service, I'm going to be standing in the far side area. And I'll be there to pray with you. Um, and I invite you to come and be prayed for as we return to God so he will return to us. Let's pray together.
Oh, Lord God, thank you for your prophets, uh, Zechariah and Haggai. Thank you for the way you use them to call your people to hope, to get on with their tasks, to rebuild the temple, to not be discouraged. And thank you, Lord, for this simple message that's right at the heart of a response to the gospel that if we return to you, you will return to us. So we do come back to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, fill us with your spirit, that you would grant us new hearts and new desires, a new hunger for your word, a new desire to share your word, a new desire to take care of the poor and the disadvantaged that our righteousness might shine like the dawn. Well, your righteousness, Lord, through us. And we pray these things uh, for Jesus' glory. Amen.